Exodus chapter 8, if you'd like to read along. Um, But before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, uh, we know that all things have been given into your hands by the Father, and that you are our Savior and our Master. Lord, would you work your Lordship in us now? Would you lead us to know you, to see you, and even to love you? Help us to hear these things with listening ears and believing hearts. Guide us by your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We'll read this morning from Exodus chapter 8. We'll begin in verse 20 and read uh, several verses into chapter 9. So this is uh, quite a number of verses, but we can handle it. All right, there's a reason why we're taking these all together. But Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, won't they stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh and his servants and his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And so Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked. And he removed all the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and his servants and all the people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, camels, herds, and the flocks. 
But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This is the word of God. Now, I know that was quite the amount of text. We've taken three plagues here all together, plague number four, five, and six out of the ten. We've bundled these all together at once, and the reason for that is because the ten plagues of Egypt come in cycles of three. This is now the second cycle. And each cycle begins with a command from the Lord to Moses that Moses is supposed to rise and go to Pharaoh early in the morning. We see that at the beginning of this section we've just read. And that happens three times over. The cyclical nature of the plagues then has the effect of tightening around Pharaoh closer and closer, like a tornado that's spinning faster and faster as the winds are increasing. So we've already seen, if you've been here with us in previous weeks, in the first cycle, we've seen the, the water turn to blood, the frogs, and the gnats. And in those three plagues, we looked at how Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The effect of a hard heart is devastating. Paul talks about it in the New Testament to the Ephesians. He says, a hard heart will make you futile in your mind, will darken your understanding, and will alienate you toward God. And we're to see Pharaoh's experience then as a sort of caution, a word of warning then to avoid, that we really need the power and the mercy of Jesus to save us from this hard-heartedness, not just that Jesus would cover over our sin and kind of wink at it and move on, that he would actually soften and transform our hearts so that they would not harden. But that's not the case for Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not willing to enter into the salvation of God, and instead he persists in his hard heart, and it gets harder and harder as the plagues progress. So that's how we began in the first cycle, the first set of three. Now here as we enter into the second cycle of plagues, there's a new dynamic that's added to these 
Egyptian plagues. And this doesn't just mean that there's a new degree of intensity, uh, that, that these plagues are in a way more intense than the former ones. They, they, they add to the chaos. So the fourth plague, the flies, if you can imagine, this is especially difficult in a culture where there are no screens. You know, window screens, that's really a luxury if you think about it. In their context, a window is really just an opening in the wall, and you think, oh, well, they could just put a cloth over that and keep the flies out, right? Well, that's how you actually breathe with the airflow that goes through your house, and so that would have been stifling. You can't just cover it over. And it's not just that the flies come and are annoying to the people. At the end uh, of the announcement of the plague of the flies, it's described that throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined that the flies were actually destroying their very livelihood, the things that they were to eat and live upon. And then followed with that is is plague number five, which we don't know exactly what this is. It's just described as a very severe plague. Some people think it was a form of anthrax. I have no idea. The text doesn't tell us. It just tells us that the effect of this was some sort of disease, some sort of epidemic, where we see the first mention of death occur as a result of the plagues that now the livestock are dying off. And then in the sixth plague of the boils, it's kind of eerie, the image of the soot being thrown in the air, and then it begins to rain down, and it lands on people's skin and becomes sores. Or even the magicians, the most powerful religious people in Egypt, literally could not stand before Moses. They were crippled by the boils. So these plagues, as they hit, are knocking out the land, the livestock, and even the health of our own bodies. But it's not just that these plagues are cranking up the volume of intensity to 11. Something is actually being added to the plagues here. The land of Egypt is coming undone, but not everywhere. If you look carefully in these plagues, the new dynamic added in this second cycle is there is now an aspect of distinction. An aspect of distinction. So we know from earlier history that generations ago, back in the days of uh, Joseph, you know, the technicolor dream coat and all of his, when the Israelites first came to Egypt as a result of the famine, they settled near, around Egypt, but they were shepherds. And shepherds were, you know, low-class people in their culture. So uh, the Israelites were exiled to a separate area of land that was called Goshen. So now in the second cycle, that land of Goshen is exempt or set apart from the plagues. You may have noticed it in verse 22 of chapter 18. Listen, the Lord says, On that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. He says it again for the next plague in chapter 9, verse 4. But the Lord, he says, the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. 
There's a distinction being made here. And even though it's not spelled out specifically in the sixth plague of boils, it's just that's a nice, uh, concisely written event. We see that distinction continue in the later plague. So we assume this is a new dynamic now woven into the fabric of the plague. So the question for us this morning is, now that there's a distinction in the plagues, what does that mean? We want to understand what's going on here. So we'll ask three questions about this distinction of plagues. The first question is, what is the distinction? The second is, who is part of the distinction? And then, why is there a distinction? Got that? What is the distinction? Who's part of the distinction? And then, why is there distinction? Let's do the first one. What is the distinction. If you've ever heard the phrase, uh, uh, he's a man of distinction. Is that a common phrase? I think it is, at least. Oh, that person's a, he's a, he's a man of distinction. If you imagine in your mind, what comes to mind when you hear a man of distinction? For me, the first thing I think of is that man would probably have a top hat, I don't know why that comes to mind, but probably a mustache, maybe even a curly one. Uh, yeah, he'd be pretty well-dressed, have, have a nice suit. Uh, his hair would probably be white, just at least in my head. That's what I imagine distinguished, then, in that case, means a person of particular honor, dignity, respect. Uh, but that's not the meaning of distinction here. Here we're not talking about traits or characteristics. We're not talking about a difference in dignity based on a person's education or status or clothes or hair color or skin color. Distinction here simply means to be set apart, to draw a distinction. And it's true, at least in a sense, that every person is distinct from everyone else. You know the famous words uh, which come from Psalm, Psalm 139, that I praise you, Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Recognize that phrase? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That last part, the wonderfully made part, is the same word of distinction here. So it would be fitting to translate that, I am fearfully set apart. I am fearfully distinct. In other words, the psalmist there is saying, I am an individual that is different, that is unique from every other person. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 139 says things like, you, Lord, have knitted me together in my mother's womb. You've written all my days in your book before they even occur. You know my every thought, my every path. You know when I sit, you know when I rise. You have searched me and known me. That I am distinct from others. And we know that we can certainly overextend this, deify it even, that we become overly individualistic. That's sometimes a problem for Americans. But we also don't want to err in the other direction either. 
It's not just, you know, feel-goodery to say, oh, each one of us is a snowflake and we're all so unique. No, this is true in the scripture that every person is set apart, is distinct. It is true from the scripture to say, you are special. Do you treat other people that way? Do you view yourself that way? Now, this distinction is not just between me and other people. The context of the plagues here, in this particular instance, what is being set apart is not me from other people, it's particular land. That one area of land is distinct from another land. It's, it's as if there's this sort of invisible wall that is set up through which the, the flies and the disease and all the boils do not and cannot cross. We can see how clear, how stark this distinct wall is set up in the ninth plague. The last plague before the final one, the Lord brings darkness over Egypt. Three days, the land is described as pitch black darkness, or a darkness to be felt. In other words, it was so dark that people had to feel their way around to grope in the darkness. So this is more than just, oh, a storm cloud came over, or an eclipse happened and it got pretty dark. This means dark like a cave. Not even likely, not even fires, or torches, or flashlights. In Egypt, for three days, it was darkness. And yet, we hear in chapter 9, verse uh, 23, they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. There's light in Israel, but not in Egypt. Or light for Israel in Goshen, but not in Egypt. It's, and then there's not just a hazy space of kind of sunset in between. You know how when it gets dark, it's not really dark. There's kind of moon and stars, and it's kind of vague. It's like the Lord has drawn a line in the sand, and on one side they have light, they have regular day and regular night, and on the other side it is pitch black darkness. That's what this distinction is. It is to be clearly set apart one from the other. So that's our first question. What is distinction to be clearly set apart from another? Let's look now at our second question. Who here is part of the distinction? Uh, the question is answered in chapter 8, verse well, verse 22, but I'll read verse 23. Thus, says the Lord, thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. So there's the distinction. My people and your people. In other words, the Israelites and the Egyptians, including all of their land and all of their livestock. So that seems like a fairly simple answer. My people, your people. It is a fairly simple answer. But this requires a few 
clarifications just for us to understand this better. So let me venture my best at this. The first clarification is this. When the Lord sets apart his people, it does not mean that his people are exempt from every plague. It does not mean that his people are exempt from every plague. There is no mention of distinction in the first cycle of three plagues. It seems that all the land, all the people, Egyptian or Israelite, all of them experience the Nile water being turned to blood. All of them experienced frogs coming upon them, upon their houses, upon their ovens. All of them experienced the gnats in swarms that came upon them. I've heard folks who think that they are automatically immune from COVID because they're a Christian. I'm God's people. So this doesn't apply to me. That is silly. The scripture never says that. Nothing in the scripture says that the people of God will ever be set apart from every trouble or sickness or famine or addiction or cancer or disease. When the Lord is setting up a distinction here at this point in Exodus, he is doing it for a particular purpose, which we'll look at in a moment. So we should not be presumptuous and just assume that because I'm a Christian, I'm exempt. The second clarification is that when the Lord sets apart his people, he does not mean that the Egyptians are automatically all doomed. He doesn't mean they're all doomed. The next plague, which we'll look at next time, hail, the Lord warns them that this plague of hail is coming, and he tells them about it beforehand so that they can get everything that's theirs, especially all their animals, into shelter so that they will not die. And some of the Egyptians do that. Chapter 9, verse 20, Whomever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. So the Egyptians, who had now been watching what's happening with trembling, who have now become God-fearers and have learned to obey this God as a true God, are now spared from some of the effects of the plagues, just as Israel is by the mercy of God. The last clarification that I need to mention here is that when the Lord sets apart his people, it is not really about ethnicity. When the Lord sets apart his people, it's not really about ethnicity. The scripture everywhere is clear about this, but Paul is especially clear in Romans chapter 10, verse let me find it. Verse 11, Paul writes this, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him, Jesus, will not be put to shame. For, listen, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
What we're seeing in Exodus is that there's a, a, a tangible distinction, a tangible line between Israel and Egypt, but in a bigger sense, it's not really about the ethnicity. That's not the distinction. There's not a line between Jew and Greek or any other non-Jew. Both Jew and Greek all have been created by God. Both Jew and Greek all have sinned. Both all have fallen short and abandoned the glory of God all need to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, and all will receive the riches of true life if they do call on him. Now, this doesn't mean that the Lord has no distinction at all. He clearly does. There is in the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament a distinction between my people and your people, but that distinction is not between Israel and Egypt. The distinction is between those who call on the Lord and those who do not. Those who believe in their heart and those who do not. Those who confess that Christ is Lord and those who do not. Those who are made righteous by Jesus and those who are not. The distinction that we see here in these plagues of Exodus is then a tangible, visible picture of that internal reality. It's showing us what it looks like so that we can see the difference between my people, the Lord's people, and your people, Pharaoh. So that's our second question. Who is part of the distinction, my people and your people? Now let's look at this last question. Why? Why is there a distinction here? What is the Lord's motivation in doing this? We know what it's not. It's not because the Lord wants to protect his own people from all and every harm. You know, if that were the case, he would have made a distinction from the beginning, or maybe even would have prevented the Egyptian slavery from happening in the first place. Wouldn't that be nice? It's also not because the Israelites are better people. You know, we hear Pharaoh is, is hard-hearted, but soon when the Israelites leave Egypt, they're described as being stiff-necked, just as stubborn. After they are, are freed, brought out of slavery into the freedom of the Lord, they grumble and they whine and they try to turn back into slavery. Their, their thankfulness is about this long before it dies out. So it's not because they're better people. So then why does the Lord set Israel apart? He tells us in here his purpose in doing all of this. Where is it? Chapter 5, verse 22. Listen carefully for the purpose. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. That's his primary motivation. If you write in your Bibles, underline this, that phrase, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. He is the Lord. 
Whether, whether Pharaoh realizes or acknowledges that or not doesn't really matter. That doesn't change the reality of whether he is the Lord or not. But the Lord wants him, Pharaoh, and us to know it. To know that I am the Lord, to see it, to experience even. And it's not just that the Lord is the Lord somewhere out there in some nebula far apart from us. No, he's pulled it right up into their backyard. He said, I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. In other words, we could say in the very guts of the land, in the very heart of your space. There I'm the Lord. I want you to see and know that I am God right here, right now. So the distinction then serves that purpose because it shows the Lord's mastery over everything. I used to be a tennis player. Is that any surprise? Do I look like a football player? If only, I wish. I played a little bit of tennis. I was not good, but I played. Uh, and, you know, summer, back when you could do summer activities, when I was in elementary school, of course, we had the couple of weeks of, of tennis. And, uh, and we had a particular drill uh, from our coach that we called pyramids. I think it was mostly when the coach was tired and needed to give us something to do that was kind of pseudo-tennessy. So pyramids worked that, that the coach would set up uh, three tennis balls in a, in a triangle and put one on top, and he would set them on the court, two of them, usually. And then all the rest of us were on the other side of the net. And the goal was you had to hit from behind the serving line, you had to hit your ball and try to hit the little ball of pyramids uh, on the other side of the court, and if you did, he'd get you a pop. It was in Kansas, so we called it pop there. Now, I hit a pyramid once. And I remember, because the soda cost a quarter, and I got to get it out of the vending machine, and it was grape, and it was delicious. But as kids who are learning how to play tennis, our best shot at this is maybe to hit the pyramid once in a while. You know, we just like hit the ball and kind of lob it over there, and it's actually good if we got it over the net. We're just kind of hitting it and, and hoping by some accident that it'll bump into the pyramid on the other side of the court. But if I were a tennis pro, tennis master, I don't just lob the ball. I don't even just send the ball over the net. A tennis pro puts the ball on the court exactly where he wants it to be. A pro can hit the pyramids on the court with near-perfect precision. So when it comes to the plagues of Egypt, it's easy for us to, to stare at the plagues with kind of our mouths hanging open. There's almost no category for some of these things. Sometimes we gawk at them like we would at a car wreck, or maybe even feel some sort of like strange attraction to them, like we do toward maybe some watching scary movies. Whatever we're feeling or thinking about the particular plagues, we should not miss what the Lord's distinction tells us here. God is not just lobbing plagues. 
He's not just sending them over the net even. He puts them exactly where he wants them to be in order to show that he is the Lord. So each buzzing fly, he puts it where he wills. Each bacterium of disease, he puts it where he wills. Each dust of soot from the kiln, he puts it where he wills. When there's a hailstorm here, they're not just falling out of the sky. He puts those stones where he wills. Even every light wave and particle, he bends to his distinction. It goes where the Lord wills. Do you see his complete mastery then there? The distinction serves to magnify, magnify the glory and the power and the lordship of God over everything so that you may know that he is the Lord in the midst of the earth. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to see and to know your lordship here over everything over everything that is created, especially your lordship over our own lives. Help us to be humbled before you, to honor you, and to trust and to follow you. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.